Hi, this is Kirsty Cross, and I am currently walking in the forest, Utnamalit, which in English means walking in the forest without a flashlight. It's night time, and I'm in the forest in Dala, Isun Fjord. I'm uh, on an art residency at the moment at um, this place called Nordisch Künstler Center, Dala. And to be honest, it's really a kind of Scandinavian arts paradise. I have a beautiful architectural uh, award-winning cabin and an amazing studio. And there's four other artists here, so we can hang out. We each have our own homes and our own studios. And I'm also being paid to be here. And, you know, I wake up in the morning and I just think, oh my God, this is beautiful. I look out over the mountains, drinking my cup of tea, and it's so beautiful to have this opportunity to work in such a beautiful place. But, you know, so much of my day is spent with me dealing with my head. It's just so annoying, like getting into the right headspace to be okay about being an artist. Like I've come from a different background. I didn't come from an art background or a family that were educated or who thought that this was possible. And to be honest, it has been a pretty tough road sometimes for me, but also incredibly exciting. And I feel that being an artist, there's just so many uncertainties. And in many ways, it's like walking in the forest in the dark, like I am now. I have a little bit of light from my Zoom recorder but I have to be really careful not to like lose an eye. Um, I do have my mobile phone though and someone just sent me a text message. I'm not going to check it. But anyway, this series is called Walking in the Dark Utnamalikt and it's talking to artists who've had good careers and about how they've managed to do it, how they've managed to juggle life, you know, their own life and their artistic career and thrive and survive. Oh, I just fell in a hole. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what happens sometimes. You fall in a hole and then you got to brush yourself up and get on with it. And that's what walking in the forest, eating Nummelicht is all about with Radio Tent House. Anyway, this is episode one and we've got an interview with Kate Pendry. Kate Pendry, I met years ago. I saw her do a spoken word piece at a friend of mine's exhibition, Amelia Beavis Harrison. And, oh, I really liked her show. And afterwards we hung out and I liked how she was very opinionated and uh, she quite liked my statement. I said that I thought that Marina Abramovic and Kate Bush were quite similar kind of people or similar artists in that you could tell that their work was really pretentious and they were quite at home with being pretentious probably because they came from like elite backgrounds that you know entitled backgrounds where they could be pretentious and it would be fine whereas for me I'm from more like a lower middle class or oh I think this is a tree here I've gone in totally in the wrong way. 
lower middle class or upper working class family. And you know, if I ever did something really pretentious, I, people would just like laugh at me or throw shit at me or, you know, even as an adult in Australia, I'd feel the same way. And I guess that's really informed a lot of my work. Anyway, Kate agreed and uh, I guess we come from similar backgrounds in some ways in that we're both from this like lower middle class from the English kind of empire. But she's also an immigrant to Norway from England. So we've got that native speaker thing happening. Anyway, this is an interview I did with Kate back in my studio in Oslo. Uh, Enjoy it. Whoa! Shit! <laughs> oh man. It's beautiful. But dangerous. What was that? Hello everyone, this is Kirsty Cross. I'm in my studio in Wintergata and in Oslo and I have the lovely Kate Pendrew here with me today who I'm going to be interviewing for this interview in Walking in the Forest Utendunnelift which is all about artists and their careers and what it's like to deal with uncertainty. So first of all Kate, um, how do you like to introduce yourself as an artist? Mm. Yeah, that's a barn burner of a question. <laughs> I don't like to, but I, I, I found that it's most um, comfortable for me to say uh, I am a trained actress and also a playwright. And oh. then any further qualification might be, and I will work in whichever medium is most conducive to the message. Okay, so just say if you were at a dinner party and someone was to say, oh, hi, Kate, so what do you do? Mm. What would you say? I work in the theatre because I found if I say that I'm an actress, mm. it's um, often <clears throat> assumed that I'm uh, sexually promiscuous. I've had people raising oh, their right. eyebrows and saying, do you, I've had one guy saying, do you do, you do films? <laughs> and I said, I, I have been in films. And he start, his eyebrows started waving up and down. And what he was implying was, really, did I do... This was not someone who was interested in the, in the arts, and fair dues to him. I think the guy was a real estate, whatever. Yeah, sure. But I think it was really interesting how loaded the word actress was. But when I say I'm a trained actress, I sometimes say classically trained uh, and, and playwright. But at a dinner party, I say I work in the theatre. And I say it with a heavy heart because often, oh, that sounds like fun, mm. you know, and, 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 and so it goes on. And it's not really, it's just my job. And... Mm. I actually think the question outside of an interview situation, what do you do, is deeply offensive. I don't like that. <laughs> I mean, how dare you? I'll tell you what I do yeah. when I'm good and ready. And, and yeah. by telling you what I do, you're going to make certain assumptions, I assume, mm. about what that profession entails based mm. on what your experience of it is. Um, so maybe a further question is, 
I would, you know, how do I ask people what they do if I don't like to be asked right. myself? And um, I, um, I will tend to say, can I ask how you pay your rent or, oh. you know, what, what's, um, what's your hopes and dreams? And, and, and then they answer, I don't pay the rent. <laughs> yeah. Usually they'll tell you what they do and they'll either, it's either a job or a vocation. Yeah. They either love it, I'm a musician, or they'll say, well, I, I'm, a, I'm a brain surgeon, but it's, you know, it's just the thing I do. And, and I always yeah. have quite a lot of respect for people. But I have learned never to say that I am a performance artist and I've never had. <laughs> and I, deeply upset when I'm introduced as a performance artist, especially in Norway where Kate Pendry is a performance artist and they have this Norwegian phrase, who has established herself as if I've broken into venues and started performing without any request to do so. Yeah. And people have just not had any participation in that event. And I find that extraordinary that she's established herself, taken all this space for herself and it's mm. like it doesn't work like that. And of course, performance artist is a trope that we don't like. I don't like performance artists. Most of the ones I know, I don't like slam poets or performance artists. <laughs> so I guess that goes on to the next thing. I mean, when I saw you perform at Bola years ago, mm -hmm. that was a piece of spoken word. Or how do you like to say, uh, what would you call a piece like that? So what a great question, because I'm extremely uncomfortable with spoken word. Yeah. What, what What's that? I mean, <laughs> no, sorry, what does that actually mean, spoken well, word? Well, are you doing not, that now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so I do like specifics. I like, uh, I like that. Look, for me, it's all theatre. I'm trained as an actress. Mm. I may be standing, uh, speaking of thoughts that I have about certain things, but I have... I have chosen carefully the words that I'm going to say. I'm doing it now. I choose to find certain rhythms so that what I'm saying can be reached. And yes, I am myself, but I am also playing myself. Mm. And I'm, I'm, I use the t all of the techniques that I have been given over the years, classic uh, contemporary performer training techniques that I learned many years ago to do the job, which is to communicate the, the fairy tales of the mind, whether it happens to be a, a political idea about gentrification or, or whether I am playing a character who doesn't have my voice but has another one. It's same, same. It's mm. theatre. It's one of the purest art forms. It's one of the most maligned. It's one of the most mediocre. It's one that's still hobbling along, although it should have been dead a long time ago. Mm -hmm. So for me, there is no spoken word. I'm doing a piece of theatre. Mm -hmm. That's okay. it. You're meeting a fourth wall that's been lifted. I stand upon a stage. I use incredible techniques where I, I wave some kind of invisible. If you cast that spell, which you agree to as an audience, you sign a contract with me that I will do this. I use a pause in a almost dominant manner. All this stuff is weirdly psychosexual in terms of um, how I will try to manipulate the room. It's fallen apart and I'm on times when I've had to perform for drunk people. So now, for example, I will never perform at a venue where uh, alcohol is freely available. Okay. I won't do it. Yeah. Uh, because I'm not, a, uh, I'm not, I was going to say I'm not a stripper. Mm. I, I, I don't do sex work. Mm. And that's what it is when people mm. are leaning back, mm. nurturing their desire to mm. 
to feel drunk. Mm -hmm. It's all quite masturbatory. And yeah. then I come on stage without filters and yeah. I, I won't do that. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't have me if you're drunk mm -hmm. because I, I think we need to sign a sober contract together yeah. to share this space. It's theatre. Yeah. It's my church. Okay. That's a really interesting philosophy and I'm sure you've had some oh. interesting performances that led you to make that decision. Um, Could I just say that in the, in the process of this interview that we're having, it's just a caveat that uh, I <clears throat> have arrived at a point where I, I know I make uh, quite concrete statements which are uh, very clear and specific. Mm. They have been born out of 40 years, yeah, decades sure. of, of, of thought and reflection, yeah, and yeah. I can defend these yeah. sometimes, I've been told, outrageous mm. ideas. Yeah, and it's also having these uh, strong opinions is what makes you who you are as an artist. Mm. Although previously in my life I've had strong opinions which were not born out of evaluation yeah. and reflection and they caused me a great deal of pain. Yeah. Um, I've been sued, I've been attacked, I've had death threats and I couldn't oh, okay. stand for my opinions because they were born from a personal neurosis and trauma mm. and interesting art it might be, but it's quite interesting. Can I stand quietly with dignity on this controversial opinion and yeah. do what Barack Obama did. I think it's very interesting that Obama traditionally will use an equal amount of negative space in his speech mm. as he will positive. So the silences are equivalent to the words. Mm -hmm. And I, I certainly think that's something that women artists can, um, can, can get onto. Okay. So I, I try to, you know, what would Barack do? I try to ask myself, can I quietly with this, I know, barn burner of an opinion, mm. can I stand for it? And even with dignity and can, for, for both myself and my mm. antagonist or fellow interlocutor, mm. present that with dignity so that it can be met in some way mm. rather than that it will cause me violence. Mm. And that means one has evolved into a place of good mental health. And I have had... Um, been very very unwell mm. previously in years and I'm in what's technically my clinicians call a period of great post-traumatic growth okay I, I that's literally my diagnosis at the moment yeah, right. that I'm I, I I mean I think Hemingway said and it's always very wonderfully pretentious to quote mm. Hemingway that old misogynist god bless him that he could write a line couldn't mm. he the world breaks everyone, but some are stronger at the broken places. And, um, yeah, I yeah. feel quite fortunate to have survived yeah. a mental illness. And, mm. and, and I wouldn't have been without it. Not one second of it. Yeah. I wouldn't have been without it. Well, it's so um, great that you're so open to share. Oh, yeah, yeah. Bring it on. It's yeah. super important because, you know, we're becoming more aware of mental health in general and able to talk about it. Mm. Um, but also to, to share this on the show, I really appreciate it. You know, I, I, um, I'm just thinking of your listeners, our listeners right now. Mm. And if I was a listener, I'd be trepidatious at this point and thinking, oh, no. Is it, yeah. you know, I'm just, uh, no, uh, sorry, let, uh, let me finish. And because it is, um, it's a tricky one when we speak, because it's a fine line between indulgence yeah. and 
I, I would just say again this caveat mm. that I, when I speak of the mental health issues mm. and before when I've spoken about them, especially when I've actually been ill and I've been mm. on national radio shows where I've been mm. in a breakdown mode, oh. um, you know, performance art version of Amy Winehouse and nobody stopped me. Wonderful yeah. though because it's raw stuff but, mm. but now I will try to speak of it because it may lead to a bigger conversation yeah. uh, that's not about me. It's just this yeah. is my experience but yeah. I see there's a certain universality in it. Yeah, sure. Um, which which we can maybe maybe talk about. All right. Well, I think what we need to do though is just to tell people a little bit of background information about your work. So, forty years—that's an amazing career. Um, say if you were to list your top five favorite shows, what would you? Mm. What would they be? Because you've done a lot. Mm. Um, the work which I feel is robust. And perhaps I would still present at an artist talk. Mm. Um, <clears throat> yes, certainly my manifestation of the dead Princess Diana of Wales um, in a, a rather dark exorcistian demonic form as a critique, direct critique on the culture of celebrity, um, where I used real-time voice manipulations to, to, to manifest a number of other dead celebrities. Okay. I felt very proud of that. That I performed over 10 years. Where did you do it? Oh, it, it was everywhere, all oh, over okay. Europe, I, the, the Museum of Modern Art in Stockholm, yeah. Belgrade, uh, except for London. I did one small performance in London, which was met with stunned silence. And, <laughs> um, it was, they were terribly upset. And I was yeah. told by the venue owner that I was about 100 years ahead of my time. So, um, Dead Diana, that was called. I then created a series of, of work, of, of uh, film works, video works, where I, at the end of the last century, created one character for every decade of the 20th century, oh. and you could meet them in, in this intimate environment. It was filmed, so it wasn't interactive. That went on tour with Rixudstillinger, which was yeah. a now defunct organization of the National Turing's Exhibition. So it toured the it mm. toured all over and that, that is on the internet mm. now. I'm very proud of that work because it was pure acting mm. and I manifested 10 very distinct, I created 10 very distinct characters. Mm. Um, and I used all of my skill sets that I had uh, mm. to, to try to, to make them mm. live. And I felt I can act, you know. Um, maybe that's, maybe those two and recently yes this year in corona i did one piece of work that again character based where i transformed into a 75 year old ex soldier in 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 the eastern block mm. it was and and i just was him for an hour and i think even my make the makeup artist who transformed me who's who'd done film work for years in the states and here I was very grateful that the feedback there was you've never seen anything like it. I knew I was onto something. And where did magical. you did you film that or has so it been exhibited or no no live? so so it was filmed and it was it was live streamed mm. as a as a live performance concert and, mm. and our director was in Poland so she had to zoom direct it mm. on zoom and I thought that was really beautiful wow. coming together where everyone in the room was quietly full of dignity not much money in it for anybody but it was a labor of love and and we it was done a couple of weeks after lockdown and what was to have been a live performance we immediately asked ourselves right is it to be cancelled and there was no question we must find a way like the dandelion mm. to push up through the pa pavement yeah. with all these technologies 
But instead of just filming a performance, we adapted it. Mm. And I think there's a whole other conversation to be had about about adapting to the streaming format. Yeah. But I was proud of the dignity of it. And perhaps yeah. that's the common thread. Di- Dead Diana didn't have dignity, but it had balls and it had yeah. noise. And it was it was as close to metal performance, I've been told. Okay. I do love metal. I, I discovered metal music when I was 45. Okay. Um, I was listening to a lot of Phil Collins before that. I, I, <laughs> my... No, my music tastes are not quite so pedestrian. Mm. I, 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 I'm, I'm being disingenuous there, but, but I sort of suddenly discovered System of a Down and went, "What the fuck? Why didn't anyone tell me about this? Mm. This I can do." So I've been doing a bit of screaming, growling, and I'm, I'm going to be coming into a project next year, which, um, which will be looking at that. Where I'm working with a, a metal vocalist, and we're quietly going to try and map out some territories. I think there's a lot Great. of dignity in metal. Okay, lovely. So what I think we need to talk about is a little bit background information. So where did you actually study theatre? Mm. And, and where did you grow up? Mm. I, I grew up in central London in a very now famous area called Notting Hill Gate. Mm-hmm. And I want to really emphasise that I was born in 1965, so the, those formative years... Um, Notting Hill was a was a slum area. Mm. It was a ghetto immigrant area. Mm. Um, so when particularly, bless you, Norwegians say, "Oh, I love Notting Hill. Oh, I've been there. I was I was there three years ago." And I, mm. I, I just want to do the Batman slap of them and say, mm. "You don't know Notting Hill Gate. You have no idea. Notting Hill Gate now is only fun for people who have money. Yeah. Those of us who raise us. That informs a big, but it's a big barn burner of a question because mm. I'm very proud of being a London. I'm a Londoner, mm. mate. You know." Mm. Uh, through 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 and through in some respects. I was raised there, but my mother is Austrian. Grandparents from Czechoslovakia, great grandparents were Russian. Mm. Somewhere way back in time, we have Mongolian ancestors. Oh, yeah. So you know, we're all part of the genetic soup, aren't yeah. we? And my father was English, and mm. I'm a lower middle class family, and and he he didn't do well in that environment. He was an artist, but his Oh, so he was an artist. He was a fine artist. Um, mm. So he went to the Slade School of Art, yeah. winning a gold medal in 1958. Oh, wow. But, um, but um, it was a very, very troubled man, beautiful but troubled man. And he um, and he, he, he succumbed to a, a dreadful addictions, um, which, which killed him in the end. Okay. And so the talent was not ever fulfilled. Yeah. And, and there's a, a terrible, terrible beauty and melancholy in that but one shouldn't romanticize it it is what it is um so but you know when you're the child of a of an addict uh, in that in that sense who's also very gifted um we didn't romanticize artistry you know at mm. all but there was there were very gifted artists in the family yeah. we were very working class and they were mm. not they were not successful artists yeah. they were just gifted yeah and um i left school when i was 16 1981 mm. i didn't do well at school i was pre- precocious as you can probably tell I'm very mm. intelligent, mm. Um, but I'm self-taught, mm. and I didn't do well academically because reasons. And um, but I worked, you know, for five years until this burgeoning knowledge that I was to be an actress. I had done a great deal at school and um, outside of that, uh, semi-professional productions, often very political, mm-hmm. because those were the times. So I was fortunate to do quite a lot of political work at the age of fifteen. Yeah. Around war and refugee as around well. That was the time of the Falklands War, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was exactly. So we, you know, we were. It, it was a. 
kind of obvious for me that that an actor does political work. I knew this at the age of 13. There was no question because mm. I had very inspiring teachers. Um, and then I tried to get into drama school and was roundly rejected for a number of auditions because I had gained weight at this point because I was unwell already, the manifestations of an eating disorder in my very, very troubled childhood. But they were manifesting uh, very darkly. I, England was very chauvinist at that time and, and as a woman with some... I'd manifested also sexual promiscuities, which often happens with girls with troubled childhoods. So, you know, there was some stuff going on. It was a, a bit of a war zone for mm -hmm. me. And um, never succumbed to drug or alcohol addiction, mm -hmm. but certainly food became a problem. Yeah. So, because go. of your dad, no, you never the decision not, not to touch? I, um, no, I touched. Not to, not to get into oh, it? Yeah, no, I touched. I've been high, um, but I knew very very well mm. what the trajectory would be and I don't think I have the addictive personality yeah. I, mean, I liked I like like any human being or even animals I like being high you know um, but I don't like to be too high for too long and yeah. I certainly don't like it if I can't go to a meeting and do what I need to do I don't like like that so I choose my I've chosen in the past my highs right now I'm a bit of a nun but finally when I was at my very <laughs> when Aww. I was at yeah, it's all right. I think it's you've got. Your... Are all right. No, I'm, no I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying my my incredible celibacy. I mean, yeah. I, I, I just don't do it. I've got no interest. I don't mm. understand it. I, I don't want it. It's fine, um, for now, I guess. But um, when I was at my, I really gained weight, you know, in an unhealthy way, and I was very damaged. And by the time I reached ninety kilos, and at that point, I allowed a someone to shave my head, a uh, gay fashion designer. I always wonder whether he, he did that out of the kindness of his heart or just uh, as a, some twisted joke. So there I was with a shaved head weigh, weighing 90 kilos and I turned up a, an audition for a drama school. This was the seventh or eighth I'd gone to. And I just didn't care. I just expected to be rejected. It was what I was doing. and. Mm. But I did write my own audition speech because mm. I thought I've got nothing to lose. They're going to reject me anyway, so mm. I just I might as well write my own because I'd always written, mm. and I was accepted to drama school. Fantastic! A very mediocre drama school, or, or very non-mediocre. I was a member of the National Council for Drama mm. Training. Average. Mm. I got the training, and that's all you need. I yeah. I know I know how to tap dance, do a bit of fencing. I can do Shakespeare. Mm. I, I know Brecht. Great basic training for mm. the craft. Mm. And then I had I left and had no career whatsoever. I tried to go to auditions, some 300 actually. I'm not a good person who passes auditions. I don't mm. make a good first impression. I said to the hairdresser I went to recently, Martina, I am much cooler than I look. Hit me up. Um, and I, that was very liberating. I don't look as interesting as I actually am. <laughs> Is 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 one of the things I think I've struggled with. I I'm neither ugly enough nor pretty enough to make any particular impact, and uh, there you have it. Mm. And then through a number of circuitous routes, not having any work whatsoever, um, I I I did other work. I mm. I ran the. I ran the customer services department for Stoll Moss Theatres in the West End for three years. And mm -hmm. my one of the, you say which of my favourite works? Well, one of them would be that I initiated um, 
and accessibility programme for disabled people with reduced price tickets into 12 West End theatres in 1990, yeah. which is was still in place today. Mm-hmm. And that was, I had to battle hard for them to be aware of that. And But I wasn't doing it out of an, I, I'm not a particularly woke person. I don't subscribe to all that. Um, it's just the right thing to do, you know. Mm. But interestingly, I... Um, I learned a lot being on that side of things and and then I realised I had to leave, I had to pursue the acting, I, I had to pursue the artistry. And so at what point did you end up in Norway? And how did that happen? I, um, I met a Norwegian theatre director in London, some research or workshop situation I was invited into. I did some work with him he liked what I did and he invited me to Norway to do an experimental piece in 93 and we did that to no audience but I I didn't like Norway I didn't like Oslo at all but I liked the artists I thought they were so open and generous and they were so interested in doing interesting stuff which I just hadn't met in London there was nothing happening in London it was so pedestrian and boring it didn't stretch at all what I thought could be interesting work. Everyone was was just playing into some very dull tropes. And here it was, it was truly experimental art and it was truly political. And on the basis of that performance, I was invited by another independent director to come and do something else and the next year. And and then I met the man who became my husband, who I married six weeks after I met him, a Norwegian graphic designer. And I moved here in 95 I didn't even think about it. It wasn't a big deal. Mm. I, I didn't have anything in England. I had nothing. I had no career. I had friends, but you know, there's always a Ryanair flight. So I moved here. And So you were th- around 30 years old? I was 29, 29 when I moved here, 30. Okay. I hadn't done much. I'd written stuff. And, and, and Marius at that time was a graphic designer, but he was also a computer programmer. And Norway was very much at the forefront at, at that time of exploring um research into sort of interactive electronic art, artificial environments within the artwork. So there was a lot of interesting stuff happening in Europe as well mm. um, on that field. But what I noticed was there wasn't so much content. And Marius, bless him, insisted to his artist collective that he was working with that he bring his new wife into the project. And they all <laughs> there was cries of, Yoko Ono, she's mm. going to break up the band. You can't just bring your woman in here. And Marius... God bless him, I, I, I suspect, basically said she is a genius, which is exactly what you should say about the woman you love or the yes. man you love, he's a genius. I thought that was just such a lovely thing to do. And, and, and grudgingly, I was allowed into this collective. We've become very good friends and are to this day. Yeah. And knowing uh, and then being exposed to artificial environments, I came from a background of Shakespeare and Brecht. I had that under my belt. And here was shit that could make creatures manifest in a virtual space that you could interact with and you could make those people. You could tell, you could write with their words, you could... This was theatre in its ultimate evolved form for me. I didn't think of this as electronic art. This was, this was the absolute place theatre should be. Mm. And I threw myself in not knowing anything. I remember... I remember back in the day then, it took two days for us to render, to pitch shift a piece of text that I performed down um, to a male voice. And it took two days for that rendering. Mm. I mean, now you can do it on your iPhone. So we had to have patience in the Mm. technology. It was successful. We won awards. We toured the installation around Europe. And 
And that I felt great freedom there. And I was not getting any work here in the mainstream. Of course not, I had no language. But mm. I began to just write stuff and put it up because you could in Norway at the time. You could mm. find a loft and you printed up some posters. You went out and posted them up. You mm. told a few people they came and verse play I wrote here. Got good reviews, small audience, but good reviews. What was your first play about? Um, I, uh, I was a two-hander where I had uh, the mother of Christ, Mary, in a fictional meeting, obviously, with the mother of a serial killer wow. who's in a church and, and praying for the soul of her son and his victims. And, and I just wanted to pitch these ideas again around celebrity and, and notoriety. So I was already tapping into a, um, a, a thematic which would turn up and continues to stay through my work yeah. of of that which is good and that which is perceived to be evil often uh, by there but for the grace of are you the mother of Christ or are you are you the mother of the antichrist mm. but they're still mothers and I, I I did well with that that yeah. that concept and I had Mary uh, mother mother of Christ smoking a joint I think on stage mm. something which if we want to do a time bend and move fast forward. Um, in 2012, I was in Beirut premiering a play about 22nd of July, where I allowed that character to emerge once again mm. and speak to the mother of a mass murderer. Okay. And um, we had to go through the censorship process, of course. I had to submit the text to um, the censorship bureau in Beirut and then mm. in Cairo, where mm. we were working. And they... they the only thing they censored from my play, which was quite hefty, um, the only thing they censored was where I had Mary saying something about, "I'll dance on, ro uh, I'll I'll dance in the moonlight, I'll dance naked in the moonlight," oh, something like wow. that. And they said that this was abusive to the Mother of Christ, who okay. was also a prophet. Who should, so you had to take yeah. that out. And it was a really interesting point where the, the owners of the, the of the venue said, we will stand by you if you mm. want to keep this in because we need to fight these censorships. Mm. And I, I was I had a real reflection and I said, the line can go. Mm. It's a bugger tale. And yeah. they were, you know, so it was a really interesting moment. And so did you ever do that play in, in Norway? Yes, but in, in very closed circumstances. I didn't feel that it was appropriate to do plays about the 22nd of July. Yeah. I still don't think that it is. So... Mm. I had a closed, there was an exhibition at the National Museum which had a room about the 22nd of July and we did an invited audience only afternoon showing of it, mm. which um, um, was um, quite moving in, in the sense that I, there, there was two people came up to me, one person particularly came up to me and she was uh, the aunt of someone who had been killed at Utea. And, 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 and she appreciated the work. She mm. said it was a dignified response. And and then the Wacht, the guard, was he just disintegrated in tears. He was a man in his 60s mm. watching it. Had no connection to it. Hadn't mm. met anyone who died. And I thought that was quite powerful. And I would say there, again, I had learned by now about the dignity of doing controversial work. If you're going mm. to do controversial work, and I learned this from a media activist that I worked with in New York in the yeah. 80s. That's yeah. a whole other story. You do not break the law. Yeah. And you ask yourself which moral codes you're willing to 
push at. Mm. You have to have great ethics when you're going to do controversial work. You can't mm. just go in and kick down doors. Mm. And I've learned that bitter yeah. experience. So what I did with that play, which is called Points of Pain, mm. I wrote to the 22nd of July committee mm. uh, who represented the victims um, and their families. And I said, I will be producing this play mm. at the Red Zone Freedom of Expression Festival in Beirut and Cairo. Mm. Uh, there will be a closed viewing of it in uh, Norway. It's not open for public consumption. I attach a copy of the manuscript. I'm not willing to change mm. anything, but I mm. do want you to know mm. that this play is happening and how it's happening. Breivik is not mentioned in it, but he is depicted in this way. I had a very grotesque puppet. Mm. And... Um, I just want you to, to know that it's happening so it doesn't take you unawares. A very nice reply from mm. them. They were grateful, they read the manuscript and they couldn't see anything in this that mm. they felt was um, uh, that anything they had an issue with. However, when it was performed here, there again, VG found out about it. Mm. And they called immediately called the 22nd of July committee and said... Um, which I found out afterwards, and said, did you know about this? Mm. This controversial artist is going to do a play about the 22nd mm. of July. And they said, yes, we saw the manuscript six mm. months ago. We have a very good dialogue with mm. her, and we have no issue with the content of her work, which is just such a magnificent way to silence the gutter press. Yeah. And I was just really happy that I'd done the right thing there. Yeah. Um, and I will never perform it here. Mm. It, it is not correct. Mm. Although in 2017, there was... Um, a polyphonic dramatic uh, event in the north of Norway in Tunsa, which uh, Tala Ness, the very wonderful dramatist, had pulled together texts about the 22nd of July from various sources. And I was one of, one of the dramatists who had written about 22nd mm. of July. And she took extracts and she threaded together and made an entire script. Uh, Ari Bern, uh, Orson Sjærstad, uh, a number of uh, people were involved. And then it was read by professional actors and survivors from Utea and local politicians. Mm. And, and so that's the only time it's had a text from that work has had an airing. And I thought mm. that was a great a moment of incredible dignity mm. there. I would say perhaps here, and I don't think Ali Ben would mind me saying it. I didn't know Ali Ben. Uh, at that point I knew of him and I've always been extremely critical of the royal family and mm. royal families in general and particularly his now ex-wife and how frivolous I felt she was and indeed him and he was at that event and I was walking out of it and I caught his eye and I thought oh I've done it now and he came up to me and said I, I I've been waiting for years to meet you he said that he yes he did and wow. and I yes but um I said well, we should be careful of our enthusiasm because it's mindful that the man killed himself. You know, it's, these things are tainted with a great melancholy. And I, I just thought, I just wanted to say that the, the, the dignity of the man, I, I found myself saying to him, um, in those days you could hug, you know, and he hugged me. And I didn't understand why. And I, but I understood he must have followed my work, even though I'd been spouting off about him and his family. And mm. I, I thought, wow. And the first thing I said was, you know, I've said some terrible things about your wife and her family. And he shrugged his shoulders and smiled and he said, I know. He said, look, it's my family. I love them. But mm. you've said what you've said and mm. I get it, mm. you know. And we, um, 
we communicated for a while and I I <clears throat> I was very 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 sad mm. but um, I knew even when I met him then because he made it clear that this was the trajectory okay. you do whatever you can to um, to comfort he wanted comfort and he wanted advice and on a personal level and 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 he seemed to see he, you know like you try and do what you do but uh, yeah but I, I think that there was some bearing perhaps that has some bearing on on the idea that he had of who I was as an artist and what I represented and and what he said was that oh bless him bless his cotton socks poor bastard honestly oh he, uh, he 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 recognised what what he said. He recognised as some sort of independence in me mm. that I wasn't tainted by any establishment because mm. we did talk about establishments mm. and how they to break free from them or not is difficult. Yeah. And then I I seem to represent for him something that was free. Yeah. And I said I'm. You know. I was at the end of that year that, so for for all that he he imagined in me as having freedom and, and mm. power, I ended up in in a emergency psychiatric at the end of that year oh, myself with okay. having having quite a bad break, breakdown yeah. but um you know we're all on our path so okay so this i guess this leads to the whole topic of what we're here for like this idea about as an artist like how often your life just becomes really difficult and you have to change the way you're working or you have to maybe stop working and as an artist, often you, you're attached to your work quite a lot. It's, it's a, kind of, in many ways, like your reason for living. Mm. And when you have to change course, it's really scary. But sometimes life really forces you to do that. Mm. And it's terrifying. And you don't know whether you're going to survive that mm. change as an artist. I mean, have you ever been in those situations? Mm. Where you really didn't know if you were going to be able to continue? Yeah, yeah. No, and 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 those for for me, I can only speak of my own experience. Sure. If it's of value to anybody, for me, the realization that I didn't know where I was going, that there was no guarantee of any work in the future, that I'd worked for so many years and felt I had nothing to show for it in terms of just the basic guarantee of a roof over my head next year, and age kicking in and and being so exhausted and. And that realisation that there was so much instability and I didn't know what the hell I was doing or why contributed to me going into a nut house. I, 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 I couldn't, have, I was just devastated. It seemed uh, so, so bleak, you know. And then the questioning itself, particularly from 2008 onwards, was when the uh, uh, Progress Party in Norway, FRP, first began their narrative of the artist as a waste of space. Mm. It's not a new idea, but that was when it first became a national trope, if you will. And I, w- I had this sort of dubious distinction of being singled out as, as an artist who was a waste of space okay. um, by, by the head of the Progress Party at the right. time um, in, a, in a public meeting. And I could take that as a badge of honour, definitely, should the taxpayer's money be given to you know, fill in the blanks. But and were they attacking a particular work that you'd done? Yes, I, I had written a play which was a very uh, clear critique on pornography. Mm. And within that, uh, 
the front page headlines was she's been given a million kroner by Couture in order to make porn. Um, you know, I'm not going to use time now to explain myself and why that was sure. somewhat misleading, but that's how it went down in history. And uh, I was always doing was trying to make a massive critique on the toxic nature of pornography, but 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 anyway, that's beside the point. Oh, and there was the rape threats and the death threats that okay, came so in. That's what so that no, no, that was the that was the second or third t- project that that had happened on. I'm used to getting okay. rape and death threats. So when, so okay, so there's been three projects where that's happened. Um, one, two, three. Yeah, I think there's, there's yes, there would be three now. Okay. Um, so, and then there's general oh, she's the crazy artist, or some some conversations online. So I've learned, I, I don't, I'm not able to still to listen to positive things that are said about me. I, I hone in on these negatives. And I'm at least in a place now where I don't review, read reviews mm. ever. Mm. Um, because and I don't read good reviews or bad reviews, because do you, they don't help me. Do you watch your work? Because I, I have a really big problem looking at documentation. I hate it. I say after I do a performance... And someone sends me like a filmed version of what I've done. I don't want to see it. So of course not, and um, it's horrible. However, I have learned that that aversion to it is a neurotic mm. aversion, and so I've tackled that. Yeah. And I now I'll give it a good few months, let the dust settle. Yeah. Because I don't want it to interfere with where I'm at. Yeah. Um, but I have learned and been able to improve my artistic practice yeah. by having a little look at what I'm yeah. doing. But yeah. it took me, that, that took me 30 years to uh, to man up the balls to look at myself. Mm. And the only reason is because I'm racked with self-loathing about the way I look. Full totally. Stop. But I mean, a lot of actresses say that. Even I heard that apparently Nicole Kidman never watches any of her films because mm. she gets too... Uh, well, you become so self-judgmental. Yeah. And, and this is a very valid thing. Why should you? You've done yeah. the work. There's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. And also, we have an understanding, Nicole and I, <laughs> I've never met the woman, um, that that audience perception is not my perception. And, yeah. and that's a respect to the audience will see me in a way that I do not see myself yeah. or, or hear myself. And if I dislike the way I sound or look, that's to do with my mother issues, probably. Yeah. You know, I mean, that, that's some private shit that needs to be dealt with. Yeah. And um, whatever gets you through and whatever makes you do the best work and, and you find a balance in mm. in the end, there's no doubt about it. And so how did you manage when you were getting these threats? How did you... I didn't. I, I was very ill. Uh, they devastated me. Did you really become a little bit reclusive around that yeah, time? Yeah, well, well, I mean... As much as I could, I mean, on one one occasion, I was, I had to perform. So you would get these threats in the middle of the night, and then you'd have to get up and you'd have to go on stage the next day. And I mean, it's absolutely traumatizing. You, and you, you don't know who could be there. No, you don't. I mean, look, I have on one occasion had um, security protection in the room because there was the thought that I would be attacked, okay. believe it or not. And of course, you and then you're not attacked, so you feel like a complete twat yeah. for thinking um, you're in Norway doing a show in Bergen. No one's going to attack you. You're not that important, mate. Mm. So I do have a sense of humour about these things, but you know, at one point that happened, and and trying to find anyone who would protect you. I, I've always worked solo. I've always, um, you know, I've often had partners who um, um, romantic partners, mm. if you will. 
who have not been felt that they wished to participate in my artistic practice in any way and that included helping me you know I've been to, I was told by one partner when I was getting death threats well you you decided to do this um so it's wow. it's you deal with it yeah and, and that says a lot about my choice of partner of course mm. um the guy's a decent guy he was going through the shit he was going through he was a, an asshole I was a twit he's good now you know I, I just want to say that if he recognizes himself yeah, in this yeah. but but that was cruel and broke me. Um, so I had nowhere to turn. I don't have any family. I had ceased all contact with my mother by that point. Um, so I have no brothers and sisters. My father died when I was 15. Um, it's only in the last year that I have resumed contact with my mother's family. And that's a beautiful thing. I'm super happy about it. But I have no family whatsoever. Um, no brothers and sisters, no partner who was there. I had friends, but I didn't want in any way to rely on them. And I did fear that they would also say, well, you've... There were, there were, that was said to me also by friends. Well, oh, don't listen to it. Or, um, well, you decided to do this, mm. you know. And, and I didn't get much sympathy. Uh, uh, mm. I didn't get any at all. Now, of course, women who have been submitted, who have been um, subjected to death and rape threats um, will be listened to. It's, we know that those kind of threats... Well, they haven't... Someone said to me, oh, they has not actually done anything. I remember one man, a theatre director, was very upset because I had gotten... This was another project. I'd gotten a rape. Th- I'd gotten a message in the middle of the night from someone who had said that you're a whore and you deserve to burn in hell, wow. but first you should be taken out into the forest and whipped and gang raped. Wow. And and the you need a good whipping. So and, and, and and that male director looked at it and said, I don't know why you're so upset, you should take it as a compliment. What? He likes you. So so what piece were you doing when this happened? That was the pornography piece. Okay. Yeah. So I was no, I was I was employed as an actress in another show, but I had just gotten money for doing the pornography okay. uh, thing, which was going to happen the following year. And, and there was a lot of talk in the media about. Yeah, it was a front page of, so of front up. front page headline with a picture of me. She's gotten a million kroner to do porn. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, just putting a cup on the phone. <laughs> but did you ever think that? I mean. It's a horrible thing when these things happen because it's very hard to... The self-loathing that you might get from it in terms of, did I bring this on to myself? And why do I do this to myself? Why do I put myself into these situations? I mean, I've had similar situations where I've gone through that. With these death threats that you were getting, what did you at any time think that you really needed to change the way that you worked so no. you feel safer no not at all uh, it took uh, a decade before i could address the arching overarching issues that that led me to create work that would engender those kind of reactions there's a very a complex um set of circumstances that put you in that position um, so no, it wasn't black and white at all. I had no plan. I had no helicopter view. I I was just clawing my way from day to day, mm. um, and um, uh, 
I didn't understand why the world was so hateful. I didn't understand why this amount of toxic energy people were spending it on me because I don't generally value, I didn't, certainly didn't at that point, um, value myself particularly. I didn't think I was important. I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't understand. And, and the only understanding I could then have of it was that people will pluck at low-hanging fruit. I'm certainly not the enemy. I'm nobody. I've got no power. I'm just yeah. an artist. But the rage and hatred at the artist, I didn't ask myself whether it was also because I was a female artist. Mm. I, I think there was something to do with that. Some of yeah. the, 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 um, the rage was extremely misogynistic in tone and colour and language, mm. even from women. Um, and I... I um, I didn't change it. I believed also that, I'm so sorry, I believed also that there must have been some substance to the work, that if it's creating this kind of reaction, there must be some, some value to it. This is a correct thing to say. It's also correct to say that there may be no value to it. These things coexist. Um, and, and I just was trying to get through the day. You have mental tortures when you're under attack like that and what comes into play is the tortures of your past and your uns unsure future and it's a perfect shitstorm. But then it affects your body as well. You become more open to illness. And, um, and I think it, it reached a point in 2007 where I uh, um, ended up in hospital with a kidney infection that turned into a sepsis and mm. I was put into intensive care mm. and nearly died I, I was actually dying at one point and I remember mm. what that felt like without no family and anything and, and and all I could have all I had in my fevered state I had a fever of 42 degrees at one point so I was having epileptic mm. fits because of it and in those fits, fits I was uh, having hallucinations of these sort of demonic battles with demons and and they were all manifesting themselves in the forms of headlines and and um, oh, wow. and, and and text messages and things like this and and and, and seeing audiences who wanted to kill me and yeah. and um, and the void and it was quite epic actually and I I didn't I discharged myself from hospital earlier than I should have to go and do a performance at the Nobel Peace Center about <laughs> peace. Um, oh. And, and when you laugh, that's quite painful because I, I oh, was dying. I'm sorry. Um, no, it's okay. Um, and the point is I needed the money. It's as prosaic sure, as that. Sure, And it's not a big deal. I mean, I survived. I'm here. So obviously I survived. I, I pulled out the tube and I left and I took a taxi and went and did a show and, yeah. and got poorly reviewed for it in some fucking blog somewhere because this man chose to say that Kate Pendry looked like death. Because oh. I look, I look really rough and tired, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I still had the plaster on my hand from the intravenous tube. Yeah. So I thought that was an interesting uh, uh, aspect. So I don't know. Um, I didn't know any better. You know, mm -hmm. I should have looked after myself better, and people said that. But at the bottom of it is also this fundamental part of the capitalist structure. I needed money. Yeah. And so you just feel that you're working like way too hard leading up to getting sick or um no i never thought of myself as a hard worker i'm a lazy bastard so but Are i'm not looking after yourself but um no and 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 it's 
looking after yourself. My waking hours were spent in in deep unhappiness, mm. and that's very exhausting. Mm. But there was nothing else I could do. That's the person I was with the mental illness diagnosis that I had, the choices I had made, and to put myself into art situations that were controversial, but I didn't feel they were a choice. I followed my instincts. I didn't have other instincts. My instinct was to do this. I saw a story that needed to be told in the way it should be told, and as any artist, you were drawn to do that at that time. So mm. I didn't have a plan. I, I did what what was that I was on that trajectory of course there's certain psychodramas that you need to play out in your life to heal yourself we're mm. all doing it and this probably I suppose was part of that my my current psychotherapist is um will will always come and see my work because she's she and I have established over the years we've been working together in healing me from mental illness, that my work is inseparable from who I am, mm. and it is of great value to her to see my work, so to understand me. Aura, no, it's not as uh, at all as simple as that. Um, no, no, it, it, that, that is a, a gross oversimplification of how these things work. It's it's a, a very healthy curiosity, mm. because what she sees in my work would be yes, I, I take that back. But to a degree, it's how my subconscious works and the tropes and the imageries that I wish to play out and be given and have testified to by an audience, if mm. you will, can have some playing on on that. But it's more that that my therapist is curious about how the artist mentality works out. We're doing what might even be considered a form of low-level research work here okay. because I'm an artist who um, I was able in the midst of my most serious nervous breakdown I was being interviewed by a journalist for a book about me mm. uh, she'd been interviewing me for a year mm. a very honest uh, uh, account of my life and work mm. and I'd given her full access to my archives and and my mind and my thoughts mm. and my stories I trusted her and do trust her mm. implicitly and in the middle of this project, uh, I became very ill and I ended up in the mental hospital. And she had the ethical, terrible ethical choice uh, of asking her, you know, was it ethical to continue to talk to me mm. in this period or to even speak of this in the book, even though it felt mm. so incredibly relevant? And I can't remember it because I was very ill, but apparently I said to her uh, from the hospital when she came to visit me that I, I said, you must continue to document this because this could be my testament. You, mm. you must document this. I will be as honest as I can, but you must document me in this, in this situation, mm. in this hell. And we can decide later whether it's to be included or not. And in the end, it was included, and all my journals were included. And without it being masturbatory um, or self-serving, it, <clears throat> it became, from my understanding of the feedback I've had from the people who have read the book, that, uh, uh, that, that this was relevant material. It was, it was relevant, and, mm -hmm. and it spoke to them. And did you have a chance to, did you say, did you, did you see the material before it? published yeah allowed to say this is okay yeah I did um, but I chose not to make any corrections okay. at all 
unless I had been misquoted. Yeah. Um, and there was one or two places where I, I had I had an opinion. I could I yeah. could see the material, yeah. but I trusted this woman so much. I had very yeah. little to say. Yeah. She framed. She framed the story correctly with mm. the publisher and the editor, uh, and um, and I've had feedback on the book. It's her book. It's my story. It's her book. Uh, mm. I've had feedback which from people who are not in the arts, mm. particular uh, a couple of younger people, women actually, who were themselves unwell, mm. who who took had some comfort from reading this. Mm. And that it wasn't an un I was told that because it wasn't an unrelenting biography of mental illness. Mm. The mental illness was a side it was part uh, of it, but not everything. Yeah, it was a parenthesis mm. and it was a couple of pages. Mm. But then through that lens you could understand mm. a great deal. And because I subsequently recovered, of mm. course, I wasn't continued didn't continue to be in, in mm. that in that place. Um yeah, well I did actually. So yeah, so you said that now that they're saying that you're in a great phase of recovery. I'm in a good place, yeah. Yeah, so what can you say? What Did art play a role in you recovering? Or what, what do you think? What got you through this time? No, it was, a, it was the cessation of art or the pause of, of feeling that I had to produce. Yeah. Because drawing the blood from a stone, if I have to produce, I have to produce. It's just a very capitalistic thing. Yeah. I need to, to produce a product. Yeah. I couldn't just be, I couldn't fail. There yeah, was no, which no is ridiculous because you should be allowed to make bad art sometimes. No, I don't agree with that. But you should be allowed in a, to have space to fail privately, so that when you do make art, yeah. it's good. I, yeah. I think I think we don't need to give shit art to the world. We should um, make sure that doesn't. It, it should be ready for prime time when it gets out no, there. I, I feel like it, something should is out there. Okay, it's not the end of the world. Yeah, but I, I don't. I, I think we should. I don't know about anyone else. I, my own uh, mantra is that I do my best to produce work which is of an acceptable quality um, as far as I'm concerned. And, and I, I, I'm not okay mm. with producing mediocre work. Mm. And when I do, I have a really good conversation with myself yeah, about sure. why that slipped through the quality control. Yeah, yeah. And I know very well why it did, usually. Yeah. So, no, I don't think... I think like every other profession who produces something, we, we should have a little higher quality, quality control. Um, mm. If we want to fail and, and, and mess about in our sandbox, throwing our feces mm. at the wall, that's absolutely wonderful, but that's private business. Okay. Uh, I don't think we need to, to sell tickets to that yeah. and expect to be applauded for that. I think that's, that's, that's gross masturbatory narcissism. So, when you had a break... How long did you have a break for? Well, I didn't um, have a break, but I, I pulled back and I, I said no to a cup, a job maybe. Mm -hmm. I would, or I would. Um, well, my break may have come in me allowing myself to do work without investing myself personally in it. Mm. Which I just I allowed myself to go onto an automatic pilot if I had a mm. performance to do. Mm. Um, Certainly what you saw me do at Boa was me just uh, you put on a suit, say the words, you don't need to feel anything about them, yeah. the audience will feel what they feel, yeah, that's but, it. Yeah, I mean, you were great, and that's what happens with experience, Thank you. you're able to just yeah. go in there and do it. Well, what I did do was I was allowed to, tr this was the beginning of some kind of healing, was allowed to trust that I had skills, mm. this is a craft, mm. it's a profession, it's a job. 
mm. and I have a lot of skills and feeling lots of stuff. I already feel lots of stuff in life. I don't need to actively feel anything. Mm. Let's get the information out there. And then what I certainly understood was my audience is sacrosanct and holy. Without them, I'm nothing. I don't exist. Um, and they are way smarter than me as a whole. So they will decide what's meaningful for them. Yeah. And that changed my con the content yeah. of my art. I think that's something that I've realised too as a performer is you sometimes you can really beat yourself up after a performance that you don't know what the audience got out of it. And I've had shows where I have absolutely hated it. And then later on I've met people that were at that show that said it was amazing. So I'm like, okay, you know, they're going to see it how they see it. Yes. And my view is a different thing. Well, of course, I like to make good work, but but I don't. I also don't. Th I think there's a lot of grey zones in that as well because an audience is comprised of fifty or a hundred, or if you're mm. lucky, a thousand uh, individuals. And eh, unless you do a big market research when they leave the building and ask them all how they felt, you don't really know. You can yeah. feel it in the applause, and I think that comes mm. from great experience of mm. what the being having the radar finely tuned enough to be able to listen into that mm. response at the end mm. when they truly give you their feedback and you can usually tell them what yeah. what was going on yeah i get that but i think i think also it's a mis -dake, mistake to actually is where i'm at at the mm. moment to consider the work not done until i think applause is a money shot mm. and i think you're working pornographically if you, if you're not allowed to gauge your work until the money shot is in the bag, mm. until he comes on your face, mm. ergo the applause, you've done it. There's nothing else you can do about it. So um, I'm, I'm super okay to be in the place where I am now that it's the work. Mm. And it, that response will be what it will be. Mm. So I don't read reviews. Mm. Um, I, I have no control over it if, it's, if the response the response is bad or the response is good, there's not much I can do about it. Mm. Although if you get a particularly vicious review, which has happened, that's very painful and um, it's horrible and you want to cry at the mm. injustice of the fact that some random chick or guy or some fetus with a blog is mm. allowed to comment on your 50 years of work. Mm. Fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. Yeah. However, um, on occasion you can glance at that with one eye six months later mm. and go man she may have had a point mm. okay i might be able to do this or this but you have to you, you have to ask yourself how that works it's something else that we talked about that i think is really interesting was you saying that being in norway you've got access to all this beautiful funding um but you feel that with that comes a responsibility about what you should be making and i think that's a really interesting point a responsibility that comes with being in the position of being able to make art. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think you should always make what you want to make, but I think before one makes it, one what one is called to make, you know, it is a vocation, but I totally think there's a cultural materialist aspect to this, where you can ask yourself, what's the context in which I'm working? What are the movements, the tectonic plate shifts yeah. within this society? What are the currents at the moment? What's happening? Yeah. How are people feeling out yeah. there? What's the zeitgeist? And what is my responsibility as a citizen artist, my duty? Yeah. Do I even have one to play into that? What about art for art's sake, yeah. um, etc.? So at least to have that conversation. Yeah. I've ha I have had that conversation with myself 
uh, an ongoing one for, for decades and mm. currently I continue to do it and I have my own clear set of parameters by which I work yeah. with regard to the responsibility. But I, um, I'm going to go out on a limb now and say it's not a human right to be an artist necessarily. Um, it should be a human right to express yourself, but it, it not without taking into account the consequences of that expression and the feedback system that you are in. Mm. Um, so I think the narcissistic loop of just being the vomitorium of expression, you know, mm. Bleh, bleh, mm. and then people milling around that pile of whatever you've emitted from yourself and you not taking responsibility for it, which um, I'm sure I've been guilty of in the past. I don't think it's very interesting. Um, I don't like political work that is judgmental. I've done it myself. I choose not to do it as mm. much now, or rather that I am very judgmental and I have very clear ideas, but I, I make them subterranean. Mm. I code them. I use allegory now, mm. um, whereas before I didn't. And do you feel that that's a way of working in a safer way too, where you're yeah. less likely to get the death threats? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and, and that sounds coward. It's, it's cowardly, but, it's cowardly but it's cool. what it is, is it's beneficial because you can actually reach way more people. I so it's so. a much more effective economy of, yeah. of trying to make change yeah. and, and not because when you get the death threats, yeah. the conversation about the content of your work is over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you fucked it completely. They yeah. don't talk about the content of the work. They're just yeah. interested in, in, in crucifying you yeah. or, or not even crucifying. They're putting you in the stocks yeah. or burn the witch, yeah. you know. So what's an allegory that you've been using lately for an example? Dare I say it without getting death threats? You see, if I tell you what the allegory is... No, 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 I, no, no allow me to... Yeah, I will, I will share if I, uh, Absolutely, because um, I'm just considering what... So what you're witnessing now is me considering what the possible consequences of me sharing this information might be and whether I'm in a place where I can handle what I know those consequences so might be. Worry about it. No, you're you're you you're you're now okay, so so now you're not letting me finish my sentence okay. and you're trying to protect me from myself and you're being um very uh, worried about and fearful of. And what I'm doing is giving you um uh, an example of how I think. Mm. I am in very control of myself. I don't yeah. need you okay. to to worry about okay. my choices. Yeah. I'm I know exactly what I'm doing. And what I'll do is, um, is, is give you the allegory, which is, at the moment, I'm working on a one-woman show, which is called Transnational. And it's uh, just simply a one-woman narrative about the journey of getting dual nationality yeah. and what it is to be one nationality and how you, if you get a passport of another nationality, does that mean that you are that nationality? And... Do you identify as that nationality? Have you moved beyond your born nationality and transitioned into a different nationality? And if you then say to someone who was born into the nationality that you now identify as because you have the passport, I am Norwegian, and they say to you, but you're not Norwegian because you don't speak Norwegian very well and you mm -hmm. weren't born here, and you say, how dare you say I'm not Norwegian, mm -hmm. I identify as being Norwegian, mm -hmm. I have a Norwegian passport, 
you are um, a transnational phobe. Mm. If you say to me that my identification as being Norwegian is wrong, and um, I don't need to tell you what that's an allegory for. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for sharing. So is that that you're making? Um, and that will come next year. About this. Yeah. And this is a process that you're going through at the moment. Yeah, I am. I, I, nationality. Yes, I'm. Time. I'm not transitioning no, <laughs> at no, the no, moment, no, but, but I am. To, to well, that, there, and there, and there you go. I'm transitioning into a dual nationality. Yeah. I am trans transitioning, and I, mean, I think the title transnational is, uh, is 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 a, is a super cool title. And as soon as you have the word trans in anything, mm. it immediately alerts people to something lights go on in the brain mm. because it's very much in the zeitgeist and mm. I'm, I'm very willing to play with that mm. and um, and abuse that yeah so I guess um, what I would like to just I think maybe we should wind it up kind of soon because we've been talking now for about an hour which has been mm -hmm. lovely but uh, you know we don't want to uh, I think we've only got time for about an hour with this show so I don't know if you're asking me or telling me because you're you're yeah, not clear. You know I don't I'm know. Not, like professional with interviewing. This is the first no. kind of radio interview I've ever done. It's not about professionalism. It's about human human in, in interaction. I can't read whether you're saying I would like to wind up now or asking me if I would like to wind up now. I think it's my Libra coming out. Your what? <laughs> my Libra coming out. Your Libra. I'm a Libra. Yeah. Oh so God! Like, you don't believe in that, do you? I yeah, probably too much. Oh but, dear. Yeah, yeah, it's a problem. When when are you born? 23rd of October, mm. yeah, next week. You see, I have my birthday on Monday, and oh, I don't buy it. No, I have my birthday in October, that's ah, all. You know, okay, I mean, there you go. Libra. All right, so, but, you know, I think coming at this time, this has been a year of incredible uncertainty, and what this show, what I would like to, to kind of link it to the zeitgeist of now is how, as artists, we're just used to living with uncertainty all the time. And it's been interesting with Corona because suddenly people who have had a lot of very a lot of stability or really valued stability don't have that anymore. And it's been quite interesting watching the cards fall. What advice could you give to people? Because I think people could really learn a lot from artists right now. Oh, um, I mean, first of all, I would definitely say I haven't met a single friend colleague artist who hasn't when you've said how's your corona been who hasn't said it's been all right no difference mm. no money no guarantee of work uh, mm. weird isolation and and a strange society that doesn't know it's ass from its elbow it's business <laughs> as usual really isn't it <laughs> i mean yeah. it's like no one turning up to my gigs I, I don't know what to tell you you know so i i i think there's a very sweet humour that we've, we've had about it. What advice, what can people learn from artists? Well, um, this assumes that all artists are fill in the blanks. I think what people might be able to learn from talented artists who are able to create robust work of humour and compassion that seems to have a life. Mm. So it's not just artists. What people can learn from good artists... Mm. is um, I can't I can't answer it because I don't trust or like artists as a group. 
So I wouldn't yes. want to take any advice from them yes. as a group. Yes. But I, I think what, what anyone can learn from a, a sense of humour, quite a, a, an English sense of humour, if you will, or a sort of, sort of suck, um, irony, yes. when it's kicking upwards and not downwards, yes. when you can narrow your eyes and go, that's a banana skin waiting to happen, yes. uh, Mr President, you'll be all right if you can just see the, the, the ridiculousness for what it is and then remain compassionate to those who you know are beneath you in the hierarchy through circumstance or resource. So finding, finding that balance. I think curiosity is okay. I think we're all, if I may quote Ibsen, so terribly, terribly afraid, Pastor Mundus. And um, it is like grains of sand through every headline that I read. So I would just check in on, are you acting out of, is this action right now, am I afraid of punishment? Am I afraid that something bad will happen if I do this or don't do this? Mm. And if you make a decision based on that, and most of our decisions are based on weighing up how much punishment we'll get, mm. um, think again. It's, mm. it's always worth taking a little bit more risk. Mm. So um, uh, I, I would, you know, when, yeah, as I said to you before, when somebody asks you, how much you charge for your artwork or your work. Ask yourself how much you're worth for that gig, double it, mm. and then add it until you feel really uncomfortable and put that in as your offer. That's great advice, especially these are sketchy economic times, and mm. it's great. Mm. I, I, maybe one thing, oldest trick in the book, switch off the machine and read a book yeah. because physically physiologically mm. it can be a rubbish book it can be, have no literary quality whatsoever mm. something that's not good for you some piece of true crime fuckery pick it up immerse yourself in the physical act of turning the pages and you'll sleep well yeah it's all right books are good mate their books are really really good for you Excellent. Well, I think that's a very beautiful way to end this talk, this uh, interview. So before we do, yeah. so that moment of tension where I corrected you, there's been a couple of moments yeah, of tension. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I want you to, I hope you can take that as no, I'm totally as a, it. No, but if I could finish, if you could oh. take, take it as a, as a compliment that yeah. I feel um, it's a comfortable enough in this yeah. open space that you've created yeah. that I can speak my truth. Yeah. And... Um, and that you've afforded me the space to do that is yeah. is wicked. I Thank think you. I think and please keep keep it in. Don't take that in. out. Yeah. No, no, it's gonna be in. We gotta keep the um we can't Photoshop everything, can and we? We don't, <laughs> we don't want to be too giggly. We really don't. <laughs> we really we really don't. No, don't want I, too much I, I like a bit of tension and um Yeah, and no, I think I feel that's genuine. Yeah, no, I mean, and that's authentic. Maybe that's, what do I like? That's, that's what I like to yeah, listen yeah, to, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Uh, and, um, I, hmm, thank you. I, I, I think it's an extraordinary thing to be approached and told that the things that you think and that you say and that you've done might be of value to other people. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. It's and been thank you for your such honesty. a pleasure, an absolute pleasure. You wouldn't have got it if you hadn't been a great interlocutor. Aww, thank you. All right, then I hope uh, everyone else has enjoyed it too. Hope everyone will read a book. Yes, okay.
Goodbye.
So I'm just gonna break the fourth wall here and I'm filming this on another recording this on another night. Here I am at Dala Nordisch Kunstner Center and I'm with Hans Edward Hammonds, one of the one half of the duo of Gnur, who are the creators of the theme song for Walking the Forest with Benedict. And uh, he's uh, also going to have some music on the show. Um, and we're walking in the forest right now in the dark. Lomelicht. <laughs> How are you doing, Hans? Yeah, I'm good. Can you tell us a bit about Gnur? So, okay, so Gnurus. Gnurus, like a. It's like a. It's a, a way of describing. <laughs> 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 so is a way of like describing something that makes a good sound or any sound really, uh, but it's also the act of kind of uh, making that sound. So it's a verb and a what's it called substantive in uh, Norwegian. On the on on the on on the onomatopoeia. Onomatopoeia. I don't know. Well, you know, it's a thing and an action at the same time. But also in the action that we, uh, together with Fredrik Sele, we meditate on Whoa. the inevitable end of civilization and, and nature as we know it. So it's an act of uh, meditation, act saying like as if the world, as if we have already committed the, the thing, the critical kind of thing that will end the the world and we're just waiting for it for civilization to collapse so that's that's what Gnur is in a sense but, but it's so beautiful in the darkness yeah i guess it's nice to be to try to make something something beautiful to harmonize you know it's about lifting up the oh fuck <laughs> are you okay <laughs> there's so much swearing in this show <laughs> It's uh, I guess it's it's nice to to kind of lift up uh, the materiality of the objects that we encounter and you know and things are beautiful and things sound beautiful so it's kind of the we don't try to make it beautiful it I guess it's just lucky sometimes or if you could call it luck and can you tell us a little bit about the pieces that we're going to play tonight we're playing Mosa Hagen and also 2020 the end of the world. Uh, Tell us a bit about Hagen. <coughs> is a recording done here at uh, Dala, where we walked in because there's all these like planted forests with these American pines. Like where there, we are right now. Where we are right now, and on the and and if you walk through them, it's just like this carpet of green moss everywhere. But we heard about this place that was nicknamed Mosahagen oh. because of. Uh, of the strike in green so we went looking for that and then when we think we found it we stopped and then we just started recording this track oh with, there's with bushes using some instruments and using using like the trees and and trying to capture the sound of the sound and feeling of the forest and yeah this... you really did thank you and then tell us about 2020 the end of the world so uh that's that, the second track that's going to be played yeah so that is the 
2020 End of the World is a studio recording, which is kind of a first studio recording where we used all these kind of microphones to try to really capture the different sounds. So we were really kind of like using a microphone like a microscope on these objects. And then we have mixed them, so it's very good to listen to with headphones because it is supposed to be quite to create like three dimensionality with sound. And and this is just a stereo mix, but there is another mix which you have to experience in a gallery context or, or could be played in a movie theater would be the okay. ideal place. And there's a like. very, uh, you were telling me that there's a sound of like running water yeah. in 2020 in the world. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So the night we recorded it, the, it was really pouring down with rain. And, uh, and so we took a, what's called a piezo mic that captures the vibration of stuff and we stuck it to the building i uh, found a nice spot on the building we stuck to it and then we hear all the water running wow. down the building and yeah. um, so that track goes throughout it which uh we're, yeah so and that's the kind of the world uh giving some in addition to the track yeah, right and like you guys live in stavanger so i guess there was a lot of rain there's a lot of rain yeah there's a lot of rain and there's more and more rain oh. happening all the time yeah it just keeps <laughs> happening end of the world end of the world well hans thank you so much hansi thank you so much for um contributing gunor's great soundscapes to walking in the forest eating vermelit and you guys are our uh, theme song it's an honor thank well, you Kirsty Cross. hey it's great and uh, I guess we should try and get out of the forest yeah, before one of us fall and kill ourselves. Yeah, or lose an eye. That's yeah, <laughs> or lose an eye. <laughs> oh, yeah.
So, just want to say thank you everyone for listening in tonight. This is episode one of Walking in the Forest Uten Bermelicht. And right now I'm standing in the middle of the forest in the dark. I feel like I'm in the Blair Witch Project, perhaps. But hey, I'm living my life and it's great. And I hope you are too in these coronic times. Anyway, thanks Radio Tent House. Thank you, Kate Pendry. And thank you, Gnor. Bye.